0: So this evening I want to continue uh, the discourse on the Dhammadasa Sutta, these ten reflections that help to support our practice here. Uh, you don't I handed out the sheet last week, obviously you don't need to have it in front of you because if it's like last week, I'll only go through another one or two. So there's not like a lot to read about it on the sheet. Um, but where I begin this week is in the third reflection that says, I should strive to abandon my former habits. Now, there's quite a lot implicit in that line, uh, the big part of which is they're bad habits that we need to abandon. Obviously, we don't worry about abandoning our habits of generosity or kindness. It's uh, understood that when we're talking in this way, it's the habits that lead us into suffering, that we're really worried about. We have many good habits and part of what I'll talk about tonight is the cultivation of good habits but to work with what are the habits of mind and heart that take us down the same road over and over again into places of contraction or confusion or separation. This is what I want to talk about tonight. So there's a lot of similarities in this reflection to the first one, which, if you remember, was I should um, give up my worldly aims and values or the, the concerns of the householder life as I come into a place of practice, as I begin this period of intensive retreat in the sense of retreating from the busyness of householder life and daily life. And so in this talk tonight, I'll be talking about habits of mind of, around addiction and uh, indulgences and the distractions and that self-centeredness that is often the direction of our life when we're not conscious, when we don't bring mindfulness to our experience. So what is a habit? We all know... Uh, I'm I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about, but of course I looked up the dictionary to get a really clear, simple definition, and then this is what it said. A habit is a recurrent, often unconscious, and that's the important thing about it, unconscious pattern of behavior that is acquired through frequent repetition. And another definition was an established disposition of the mind or character. And why this is relevant for us as practitioners is you can really see our very personality or uh, as just a cluster of habits, as a cluster of these repetitious ways of responding to our inner and outer experience that we get caught in. It creates a sense of self because it becomes very familiar through this repetition. And often we can feel stuck in that repetition, in these conditioned states of mind. And a lot of suffering can come out of these habitual tendencies because, as as I said, it's usually, by definition, something that's challenging for us, that's limiting for us. And we can see how these habits work on so many levels, obviously the personal level of just ways we typically respond mentally, emotionally, on all these different levels, but we can also have familial habits that we grew up with. You know, if you look at a family and can see um many similarities if you sit down at a dinner table with a family and can just see how alike even as people are obviously unique, how many patterns are similar. We had a conversation at lunch today about a certain family and how someone said My God, you're all so alike in this way you respond to things. So we learn a lot of habits from our families. And then there are cultural habits that we learn from the milieu that we grow up in, the the norms of our society and culture that will differ uh, geographically from one end of the country to another or between countries. All of these form the habits of our mind and heart. As I was looking at this topic, I came across an author called uh, Dr. Phil Shapiro who writes about healing and bringing consciousness, mindfulness, to the process of healing, uh, especially on an emotional level. And he said this about habit. Any pattern of thought or action repeated many times results in a habit with a corresponding neurosignature or brain groove. The brain is composed of approximately a hundred billion cells called neurons. A brain groove is a series of interconnected neurons that carry the thought patterns of a particular habit. Attention feeds the habit. When we give our attention to a habit, we activate the brain groove, releasing the thoughts, desires, and actions related to that habit. What I thought was interesting about this is two things. One is the thing about creating these grooves in the mind and I've often talked about that as what happens in our process but to actually see apparently it's been proved scientifically is that this is what happens. The more we do something, a particular action or reaction, it actually creates these neural pathways that really become kind of hardwired and so it's understandable if something gets triggered over here it falls into this groove and then all of the corresponding thoughts and habits and reactions are triggered and are the result of that initial impact that initial contact and so this is why it's so hard for us to change our habits there literally is a hardwiring that happens in our literally in our brains. The other thing that was important for me is when he said, attention feeds the habit. And attention, or um, manasikara is the Pali word, is very important in the Buddha's teachings because he recognized how what we pay attention to conditions our experience, and so the Buddha often talked about, and you've probably heard teachings on what's called yonaso manisikara, which is wise attention. Wise attention, in wise attention, we notice or we look for or we pay attention to those aspects of our experience that are conducive to freedom, to letting go, to decreasing our suffering. In unwise attention, which is unfortunately a lot of what we do, we pay attention to the things that cause us suffering or we tend to accumulate experiences or uh, uh, pay attention to those, make choices of unwise attention where we notice what's wrong. In ourselves, in others, it feeds the judging mind and so that gets to be a very repetitive pattern or we notice ways in which we feel deficient or... Whatever our pattern might be, things that make us angry, that's unwise attention. But attention is really key in beginning to look at the way these patterns of mind get hardwired and to be the beginning of changing those habits. So why do we develop habits? Why is there this tendency to repetitive behaviors or repetitive responses if we can look very closely at this, and I'm not saying you need to do this, but just in my reflection in what I've read, we can see that the very beginnings of habit were some attempt to alleviate suffering. And it can be interesting to look at why. And if we look at how the habits have developed, often what all we've done is replace one form of suffering with another form of suffering but it's one that's a little more bearable. Or just because it's familiar, we allow it to accumulate. We give it the attention that forms the groove in the mind. But it's really about an attempt to avoid suffering, but over time it's gotten distorted. And once we become aware of it, especially as we begin to wake up and become a little more mindful, just the habit itself we see as a form of suffering, no matter what its original source was, or even how we experience of it. Experience it, the very contraction that forces us into this groove in the mind can be seen as a source of suffering. And so just being here on retreat, especially for those of you who are new to practice here at IMS, how many habits have you formed since being here? What you do in your day, when you get up, what time you go to breakfast, where you like to sit, in the dining room, where you like to walk, when you have a cup of tea. You can just see from a blank slate that was the beginning of of the retreat, what is your day like now? It's like, oh, it's 3 o'clock, I've got to go do this. And I don't just mean the schedule, because that's kind of given in a way, an assumption. But all the little things around that. Now, it's not to say that that's bad or wrong. You don't don't have to give all that up. It's just to bring awareness to the ways we use that tendency of mind to feel safe and to see, especially if there are ways, it actually restricts your possibility of finding some freedom. Where, as an example, the bell might ring for sitting, and you go to a sitting, even though there's a voice in you, that's saying perhaps that mightn't be the wisest thing to do, that there's a sense of contraction or unease or that might need more spaciousness or more gentleness. But no, i got to go sit. It's what the schedule says. Or that your tendency is to go for a walk at a certain time of day, even though the mindfulness is really quite developed and the little voice is saying, actually to go sit might really serve me. But no, no, if I I go sit now, I won't get my walk and I won't feel good later. And all of the tendencies around the sense of habit of going on a walk come into play. You can see how habits don't let us really listen to the voice of wisdom because that groove, we've strengthened that groove so much we're afraid of letting go of it. It's a place of comfort for us. So you you can begin to look at the at the patterns of your day and as I say it's not that you have to give up all these preferences as the great line says the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences but it's really if you're attached to your preferences we'll all have a pre- we'll all have preferences but if you find that finding someone in your walking path really ruins your day it's time to begin to look at how tightly you're holding on to these patterns of mind. It's actually interesting. Uh, in the summer, we had a teacher meeting, an international Vipassana teacher meeting, in this very room. So there was about sixty of us from all over the world coming together for three days to talk about issues relating to teaching, both on interpersonal levels and Dhamma discussions, and a lot of business. And there was a big ring of chairs set up outside the room. And again, the first day, first morning, a blank slate, where would you sit? So everyone just tumbles into the room and sits where they find a space. And the next day when we come in, I looked around the room, and what a surprise. Nearly everyone had sat in exactly the same place that they sat the day before. You've probably seen this yourself many times when you go to workshops or here on retreat in the dining room there's just that level of comfort. There was something that drew you to that place, some almost unconscious sense of this was a good place to sit. And then that was the best place you wanted to go back there. And then I would notice the people who noticed this was happening. And they were the kind of anti-habit people who stomped to the other side of the room and were very definite about, I'm not sitting in the same place. But that's as much of a habit as sitting in the same place. It's not like either of them are right or wrong. It's just noticing how we hold those things to be our point of security or place of security. We like to be in the known, and that can be a real trap for us if it doesn't allow us to really experience a sense of freedom or flexibility in our choices. Of course, one of the big... Areas of habit are emotional habits. I'm not going to talk about that a lot tonight because we've already had a couple of talks on habits. Guy spoke about habits. And by habits, I mean unconscious reactivity, where when a certain trigger happens, if we get challenged or threatened or feel afraid in any way, there's whatever it is that we usually do. We get angry or we withdraw or we get defensive. Those kinds of responses I consider habits when they're unconscious. Steve spoke a little bit about them last night in the Four Ways Efforts. And I think Carol is going to talk a little more on these very sort of reactive patterns of mind. And you can see these as habits, emotions as habits. And to see how our very practice of mindfulness begins to offer us a choice in that those habitual kind of knee-jerk responses. But what I want to talk more about tonight are places where we don't tend to bring so much consciousness to or are perhaps really difficult to bring awareness to and begin with looking at one of the stronger forms of habits, and that's addictions. And you can really see how an addiction is just a habit that really... um, has become strengthened to the extent that it becomes almost physiological, a physiological dependence. Again, the dictionary describes an addiction as a habitual psychological and physiological dependence on a substance or practice beyond one's voluntary control. And if you look at addictions in this way, you can see how nearly all of them begin from very... um, human or primal urges. And we all have those, you know, the the, the the almost reptilian part of our brain that seeks comfort and avoids discomfort and the fight or flight responses that, that we all have. Uh, we're programmed almost to seek pleasure. You know, it's why sex is pleasurable. It's why food is pleasurable because we need sex to procreate or other species would die out and if we don't eat, we'd die. So it's very wisely is these things have become pleasurable for us. But it's where they become distorted or we become the almost victims of these urges where the drives are so strong we break our precepts or hurt ourselves or others in the trying to fulfill these satisfactions. And so our practice is about bringing consciousness to these very... uh, basic kind of instincts. It's not to deny them you know, sex or food or whatever it might be at this kind of level. It's not that they are in and of themselves a problem. It's when our drive for satisfaction rests in this outer experience and we need it to feel okay or to feel happy. But to take this to another level, uh, I read this also. Dr. Andrew at you probably know, he's quite a famous uh, espouser, of, advocate of alternative medicine, a bit of a radical in the medical field. He gave this, this is part of a talk he gave at a conference for therapists, and it was entitled, Why We Are All Addicted. And this is what he says. I think that many of our theories of addiction and our ways of looking at addiction are limited because they don't take into account the full spectrum of addictive behavior. As an example, let me read you a definition of addiction from this conference. After talking about how addiction extends far beyond the realm of chemical dependence, it then says, in the broadest sense, addiction can be defined as an attitude that sees various aspects of the material world as exclusive sources of satisfaction. Addiction, understood in this way, represents a prominent feature of the entire Western civilization, which has lost the connection with its inner resources. And when I read that, I thought that was a pretty good understanding of addiction. And we've talked about this a lot. You know, this is what... Craving is about looking for something out there to make us happy. You can really see the second noble truth as a description of craving, of, I mean of addiction, this thirst that's always driving us to find something out there. But Dr. Wheel goes on and says, that to my mind is far from being a broad conception of addiction. And it surely does not just involve the Western world. That's a very limited view. First of all, if it's the attitude that various aspects of the material world make us feel all right, what about sexual addiction? Is that a material addiction? I mean, it may involve physical organs and other people, but what we're really talking about is an addiction to an inner experience. What about addiction to thought? That's something that's hardly ever discussed in the Western world. It is discussed in Buddhism. In Buddhist psychology, addiction to thought is seen as a serious impediment to enlightenment. That's one of the reasons you meditate, to try and get some freedom from thought. So you could look at universities as monuments to thought addiction. (laughs) Where you are rewarded for the beauty or the complexity or the novelty of the thoughts that you produce. Given that social context with those social rewards, rewards, why would you ever even think that thought could be addictive? I guess you guys might have figured this out. And if your conception is that addiction involves something material and external, then that doesn't fit, so you don't pay attention to it. I maintain that the essence of addiction is craving for an experience or object to make yourself feel all right. It's the craving for something other than self, even if that's within the realm of the mind. I also feel that addiction is something that's fundamentally human. It affects everybody. So that's a pretty big definition of addiction. And I I don't know if I agree completely with everything he says, but he's really pointing to, as I said, the way the second noble truth is really an understanding of addiction and how this Tanha is often translated as thirst because it conveys this sense of I've got to have it. There's something out there that's going to make me feel okay, that's going to make me feel whole or complete. And so we're always looking for that in some mental experience. So as he said, it's not just external. It can really be some conjuring of the mind that we think is going to figure it out for us or in any other kind of experience that we might have. I also don't think that you know we meditate to get rid of thoughts, but we certainly meditate to find a different relationship to thoughts where we realize that it's not about the novelty or the complexity of our thoughts and that we're going to get gold stars if we figure something out, that what we're talking about in our practice is something on a much more deeper and fundamental Level, but we really need to become aware of the kinds of thoughts that lead us into suffering and what kind of thoughts again bring us closer and closer to freedom. This is wise attention, Yonaso Manasikara, that I mentioned earlier. Steve spoke a lot last night about the four wise efforts, which are really practicing Yonaso Manasikara, wise attention. How do I let go of what's Painful and leading to suffering? How do I cultivate beautiful states of mind and heart that allow me to come to awakening? So, this is really working at very fundamental levels of our being. It's not esoteric or uh, eth- ethereal. I'm really working with how we respond at these very primal levels. So, there's a way in which meditation is very much going against the stream of current culture and current worldviews, And this is a lot of what this sutta is pointing us towards, that we are turning away from those worldly aims and values in coming to practice in this way. So as far as addiction, when we talk about it... Um, On a more generic kind of level, there are so many obvious things that we can be addicted to, you know, cigarette smoking or any kind of drugs, um, alcohol, gambling. But I think more helpful to us is to look at ways in which this addictive nature of craving plays out in our lives in ways that we may not recognize that what's actually going on is a form of addiction, And, you know, a lot of these don't apply so much to our life here on retreat, but this is, again, recognizing patterns in our daily life that we can bring clarity to through the clear seeing that we can have on retreat. But things like checking your email constantly, or, you know, for kids these days now it's instant messaging. It seems like it's endless. It's like for them hundreds of messages a day. And it's this constant... Needing to be in connection with others. And then if you don't get messages, you're like out of the loop. You're not in the in crowd. You can get addicted to that. For many people, it's having background noise like the TV on all the time or the radio on or eating when you're not hungry. This can be a kind of emotional addiction or going shopping, buying something to fill the emptiness. Some people get addicted to their work and the sense of self that gets created out of their role in their, in their business or their career about making money. Even getting high using drugs of whatever kind um, obviously is an addiction, but we can also get addicted to natural highs. That all we're looking for is the next bliss moment in our meditation to really see that that is a form of craving. That, w- that really is a, a trap for us if we believe it, if we play into it and allow that to really dominate our practice and our choices. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, an ER doctor, and so he sees a lot of people in very bad shape coming through the emergency room And we were having a discussion about addiction. And he pointed some things out to me or shared his understanding of it that I found quite interesting. I always thought that people, when we get addicted in the addictive state, what was happening was we were looking for pleasant experiences. And he said, no, he really thinks the drive or the addictive uh, drive is more about avoiding the unpleasant than getting the pleasant and he said he's seen that there are actually many drugs that people get addicted to that are extremely unpleasant in their effects he was talking actually about crystal meth and so this is just his his understanding i don't know if it's true but he said that crystal meth has a moment or two that's a high that's a rush that's pleasant But its long aftermath is excruciatingly unpleasant in the body, physically, and a lot of paranoia. It's why people commit a lot of crimes when they're coming out of crystal meth. But he said in the people that he sees, he's actually practicing in Hawaii, the people that he sees, that suffering is better than the suffering of their lives. The numbness of their lives or the sense of emptiness or, or lack of possibility. It's better to have the pain of the te- that, that terrible experience than to actually be present for their reality. It was really shifted how I viewed addiction, to see it not so much as a seeking the pleasant, but really as an avoidance. And as I said earlier, trading one form of suffering for another, but sometimes the suffering of our reality is so painful, we'll do anything to avoid it. It's really, um, it's very sad to, to contemplate that we can get to that state of desperation. And obviously, coming here as practitioners, we're really looking to wake up and to see the ways we allow our thought patterns, our mind patterns, our emotional patterns These are really, you could see them as karmic patterns, how they cause a suffering. And through acting out of them unconsciously, we perpetuate that suffering. This practice really begins to look at the patterns themselves on on, on their actual effect as we notice them arising, but also on this much deeper level that I've been speaking about to see how they come out of these really quite deep urges of wanting to feel whole and complete, what we can begin to see as there are ways to address that yearning that we have for completion, for wholeness, to contact the, that deeper sense of mystery and, and beauty in in ourselves and in life through waking up, not through grasping onto some experience distorted experience. So we need to begin to look at what feeds our habits, these habits that are difficult for us. Because recognizing something is a habit, it's, it's, it's a pattern that we've gotten into, and it's not serving us. Perhaps it served us at some time, but it's no longer serving us. So we begin to, to see with our mindfulness, these processes, these patterns, can see how a sense of self gets really strongly created by a habit, even if it's not a pleasant sense of self. It's interesting how we prefer that to the emptiness that that we can sometimes feel when we're unsure, when we don't know, when there's a novelty in experience. Rather feel guilty or angry or sad or whatever's familiar, then have that sense of spaciousness. Habits can allow us to feel important or loved. You know, when we we create this strong sense of self. Oh, I'm always competent, or I know what's right or what's best, and we we see ourselves giving other people advice or being the one who knows. And it, there's so much about the familiarity. We, we know on some level this teaching of a Nietzsche, but it's, it hasn't been brought into the light of wisdom. And so we clutch onto these patterns of habit of behavior, either through our physical movements, things we do in the day, habits of mind, because that feels safe. We, again, it's, trying, it's this discussion we've been having of trying to make the impermanent, permanent it's really what we're doing in habit we're trying to find some sense of safety some sense of control in what we underneath know to be a very insubstantial changing world but if we hold fast enough to our habits we can get this illusion of security of being in control so you can see if uh, beginning to look at this sense at this construct of habit, we really get down to very core issues of how we view ourselves, how we, what we take ourselves to be, and the ways we try to fill that sense of emptiness, that sense of not being okay. Again, Dr. Shapiro, who I quoted from earlier, the good news is that the brain is malleable. We can change our thoughts and behavior by recruiting new cells to form new brain grooves. Every thought and action is recorded within the interconnected nerve cells and each repetition adds new depth to the brain groove. If we p- repeat a thought and action enough times, a habit is, is formed. Continued repetition strengthens the power of the habit. Inattention and lack of repetition weakens the power of the habit. These principles apply to the formation of both good and bad habits. Positive thoughts and actions create good habits. Negative thoughts and actions create harmful habits. So we really have a choice. And there's ways you can see that the metta practice is creating a good habit of kindness and care for ourselves and others. And allowing our judging mind to to run the show just totally creates that groove of criticism and self-hatred and judgment of others. Now, this apparently is fairly new to the scientific community, the fact that the brain can actually change. For a very long time, there was a a quite firm belief that it wasn't possible that our brains were formed by about 5 years old or some age and that was it good luck you know make the most of what you have that which is not very good news for most of us because we don't do a good job navigating the territory there we get a lot of mixed messages and we do the best we can but you know we end up coming on a meditation retreat saying help i need some help here with my mind What they're learning now, which meditation and meditators have known for thousands of years, is it is possible to change. That the brain is malleable. It actually does grow new grooves. And so there's a lot of interest now, a lot of research going on, where they're testing the efficacy of meditation and mindfulness. You may have heard of the Mind Life Institute which is uh, the forefront of a lot of this testing, It was begun with a lot of support and interest from the Dalai Lama, who is very scientifically minded and actually says things like, you know, there's a lot of congruence between science and Buddhism. They they come up with the same answers to a lot of our experience, a a lot of the questions about our experience. But he says, if science proves Buddhism wrong, Buddhism should change. So he's not stuck inhabits. He's really open to exploring this and wants science to investigate the power of mindfulness. So they've been doing some testing on very advanced practitioners in the beginning in the Tibetan lineage, people who had practiced for 20, 30 years, hooking them up to MRI machines and all kinds of testing and asking them to... um, uh, open to or cultivate various states of mind, and particularly compassion is one they would look at. And they would see these that this person, when they were tested just through intention, could totally fire up these parts of the brain that were related to compassion. And what they saw, the parts of the brain that were fired up, were the parts that were associated with the about-to part of the brain. It was really intention. And so they saw how this practice really enabled people to be very available to act, to actually act and help if they saw suffering. But they realized in doing those tests that there wasn't that uh, important, what are I was going to say holy grail, it's not quite that, but whatever it is you need to make good scientific experiments, which is the baseline, because they didn't know where these people started from in their practice. So one of the tests they did was to actually come here a year ago. And at the three-month course last year at the beginning of the retreat, they asked for and got a number of volunteers from people just like you to take a series of tests um, at the beginning of the course where they measured all kinds of things, including acuity, which would just be measurements of how quickly people could notice blinking lights and stuff like that. But they also took some blood samples, and they were actually measuring certain things in people's blood that test stress and aging. So there were some kind of interactive testing and some that were completely obje- objective. Richie Davidson, who is has sat here at IMS and is a well-respected neuroscientist at the uh, University of Wisconsin, was doing the, this testing, and he came back at the end of retreat and tested them all again. And he gave a talk at the end of the retreat during integration about this testing. And he said, it's very early. It takes a long time for these kind of results to be actually all written up. But he said they were already amazed at what they saw, that they they were both in the acuity tests, but in these tests that were just physiological, that the, the markers for, and I'm pretty sure it was something about stress and aging, were greatly reduced in these yogis who had sat for six weeks or three months. So it's amazing um, to know that this is happening. I we all know that this stuff works, but it's gonna make a huge difference if the scientific community and then by extrapolation the rest of the world begins to know that meditation really helps to reduce suffering. I can't I, I'm it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with this? One of the papers, if you want to look it up, he wrote, um, I didn't read this one. Long-term meditators self-induced high-amplitude gamma synchrony during mental practice. Most of it is not accessible to us as lay people, but there's going to be a lot of um, stuff that comes out. You can see, you know, Time magazine, Newsweek are all doing articles on this kind of thing. That this stuff actually works. The good news is it can change our patterns of thought. And so you can really say that that's what meditation is all about. It's seeing all the ways our habitual patterns of mind, these imprints, these grooves, these karmic patterns you might say, cause us suffering. Turning our attention to it and seeing that it's possible to change. Just beginning with mindfulness but of course adding the wisdom aspect, anything is possible. There's this beautiful uh, saying, I'm not sure where it came from, but it's just a Buddhist saying. The thought manifests as word, the word manifests as deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings." So you can really see that mindfulness is the key. As we pay attention, everything opens up for us. And there's that possibility of developing all the good habits of mind and heart, of kindness and compassion and generosity. As I said earlier, metta is a habit that we can cultivate through that repetition of the phrases, and it really becomes... A choice. As John Cabot zinn says, awareness gives you your life back. You can then decide what to do with it. And that's where the freedom comes in, in this sense of possibility and choice. So again, I've, that's just number three. I'll just The next one's not so long, so hopefully I'll do that tonight. The next reflection is, again, a rather charged one. These are all difficult. They're not easy reflections. As you read through them, you might have thought, hmm, oh, don't like, oh, oh, this one's a big one. Does regret over my conduct arise in my mind? Anyone? (laughs) Of course, this can push all our buttons because all of us have things we've said and done that we regret. And so the important thing about this reflection or as a practice is to do it skillfully, to really not use it to add more judgment and self-hatred to our practice, but to see that wise reflection about this is, again, all of these are pointers to ways we can find more freedom and more happiness. This sense of reflecting me about our past actions, whether they're recent or the long, long distant past, is really a common theme on retreat, and especially on long retreats where it just seems to happen that we go through what we might call a life review. In AA they call it the moral inventory. It happens spontaneously, and you think after a while you've gone through everything, and then here's another thing, oh, there's that too that I, oh, no, not that. And it's just a very natural uh, process, I think. As we get more sensitive and quiet, any little places of irritation, like the sand in the oyster, that that are qu- not quite resolved or accepted, they're going to come up for us. You know, I don't know how many of us have made this list of the ten worst things I ever did, and you get it out and you go, "Yeah, that's right. Oh, so bad, so bad." Just use it to feel guilty or bad about yourself, that obviously is not the intention. But to really see, just like the sand in the oyster, that this, this, this reflection is the seed of what can become a beautiful pearl of acceptance and compassion. That beginning to see it, like all of our mindfulness practices, is, is, is necessary so that we can work with this level of, of judging of ourselves and begin to forgive ourselves. It's only through really acknowledging that, yes, I did this. Yes, I, you know, perhaps was unskillful. Um, we've, we harmed ourselves or others. You know, for me, I can remember when this began, began to come up in my practice and my first response was literally cringing every time. You know, I would remember, oh, I could barely turn towards it, and I would just push it away and try to, you know, get back to my breath. And, but it was insistent. It was insistent. And I realized that the, what I had to do was turn towards it, and so the huge key for me was acceptance. It's not that immediately we can go to forgiveness. We can't do that. It has to begin with forgiveness, I mean, with acceptance, And by extension, equanimity. Yes, this happened. Yes, I did that. And really bringing in the wisdom that sees that you were in a different place then. You did the best you could. You did what you knew to do out of the causes and conditions that were at work in that moment, in that experience, in that place you were in the Buddha talks about what he calls very wholesome mental factors of hiri and otapa. And again, when we first hear them, they can seem a little kind of Victorian in their almost prudishness, because the translations are moral shame and moral dread. And these, these are not um, very sexy terms in our culture, shame and dread. And, but I actually don't think they're such good translations. They give us a bit, little bit of flavor of what is being referred to here. But I think for Hiri, instead of sh- moral shame, is, it's m- more helpful just conscience. It's that sense of ethical behavior that allows us to live in harmony with other people. And ottapa is more just the fear of wrongdoing, having a sense that we live in community and we value the esteem of other people. And so that's important for us. The Buddha actually calls these two states the bright guardians of the world. So they're not places of really feeling bad about ourselves, but they allow us to live together in harmony. So it's very important to distinguish between guilt and remorse when we have these kinds of reflections. Um, Remorse is actually a healthy process to go through where we acknowledge that perhaps we weren't so skillful in what we did that we may have harmed ourselves or harmed others, but we learn from the past. In guilt or shame, we beat ourselves up for what we did and we feel stuck in the past. We feel defined by our past actions. We really need to see that it's a process of learning and that we bring our mindfulness to this and all of our compassion to this and that... Our understanding of the precepts has gotten more and more refined, and what what when we look back over our lives, we're looking back from a different viewpoint, and we can't judge that old self from this today's act, uh, today's understanding. So living by the precepts is really our guardian in this, because the precepts frame an attitude of ahimsa or non-harming if we can have that as our guiding uh, tenant there's just much less ground for creating this sense of regret about our actions but we'll all mess up from the littlest things here on retreat where you know there's a lot not so much a forum for communication but we worry you know did i take someone's walking path or you know, people objecting to what I'm doing. We're, you know, I, we have such a sense of um, a vulnerability or sensitivity on retreat that we can really distort what's happening and and be oversensitive to what other people might think or say about us and worry that we've offended someone and someone is judging us in some way. And really, it's just internaling our own internalizing our own insecurity. I've had so many retreats where I've worried about this with uh, other people and and tried to check out at the end of the retreat did did you know what was there something actually going on and they didn't even know what I was talking about so to really not take this to to have a sense of care about the precepts but not the sense of that um we're always worried that we're offending someone this is this is this is not helpful in our practice. And if, if we start to undertake this, the practice of ahimsa, this really it's a training where we just are willing to keep refining our practice. We begin to experience this beautiful state that the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness that really allows us to settle into our meditation without a sense of regret or worry. And if if you know in the traditional teachings, the Buddha always began, especially to lay people with teachings on sila, on the precepts. And he talked about the three pillars of the Dharma as being dana, sila, bhavana, beginning with generosity and how we live in community and can support each other through our kindness and actions. And then sila, the ethical conduct, and then bhavana, at the end, you begin to practice. We don't emphasize the first two enough. And actually, as Tanasaro Bhikkhu says, who's always got something um, pungent to say about things, he says here in the West, we actually teach it backwards. We, we we teach meditation first, or people think, oh, I want to come meditate. So you come on a retreat and you meditate and then we tell you, well, you have to obey the precepts, or you know, live by the precepts while you're here. And then at the very end of the retreat, we give a teaching on dana, and it's been distorted, unfortunately, into teacher dana, and it's completely the opposite of how it's taught in in Asia. And so to really turn that around and seeing that to to live by the precepts is actually a source of great happiness for us, a great source of of um Opening and wisdom, and that it, it's a support for our practice here. That we use the precepts as guidelines. We don't beat ourselves up because we're until we're enlightened, fully enlightened, we're imperfect, and we will have times when we're not living as by the precepts as we would like. But the challenge is: can we learn from that, grow from that, and not get stuck in judging ourselves? around that. So our practice really becomes not about great states of bliss or depths of concentration but really about how we live our lives. So it's a process of purification. It's not some static place we get to where we figured it out but we really trust ourselves that we can learn from our past actions, that we can grow, that we can change our habits of mind and heart, or more, more truthfully, cultivate new habits of mind and heart, of goodness and kindness to ourselves and all beings. As Ramdas says in his classic Be Here Now, as you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion. It's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple. But of course, the light is brighter too. So let's just sit for a moment. As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion. It's just that you're seeing it more clearly. (coughs) The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you proceed towards each inner temple. But of course, the light is brighter too. This talk was given by Sally Clow at Insight Meditation Society on October 26, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharmacy.